Hello, I'm Ryan Cook, and this is Civic Tech Chat, a podcast about the civic technology movement. We seek to harness the power technology has to improve the delivery of public services to people everywhere. Clark, thank you so much for joining us here on Civic Tech Chat this time. Could you give us an introduction and tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, so I'm Clark Ritchie. I co-founded and I'm the CTO of FactGem. About seven years ago, we started that uh, company along with my co-founder, Megan Kwame. Uh, prior to that, I ran public sector sales engineering for MarkLogic, a database company headquartered out of Silicon Valley. And really for the majority of my career, uh, I've worked in the Department of Defense and Intelligence industry sectors uh, as a contractor in one form or another, which gave me the ability to really work on some of the largest uh, and hardest problems uh, that exist today. So that was a lot of fun. And one of the things we like to start with on Civic Tech Chat is this idea of personal why. So what would that be for you? You know, what is the thing that drives you to get out of bed each day and do what you do? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, in my time in defense and intel, as I said, I, I got to work with some uh, really hard challenges, lots of data, uh, interesting people, uh, and it's also great technologies. And then moving into uh, more of the product side, uh, working for MarkLogic, running sales engineering, again, got to see really new and innovative technologies being rolled out to people. But what struck me was that almost all of these big data technologies are being geared to software engineers. So we're giving software engineers lots of great tools, which is important, certainly. But I always felt like if we worked just a little bit harder on the product side, we could start to deliver these capabilities to non-engineers. And if we could do that, we could enable businesses to solve problems much faster with a lot less budget, because not everybody can afford to have a whole bunch of software engineers on staff. So that's what I'm really interested in is how can we deliver those capabilities quickly directly to businesses? Your current role as a, you're a chief technology officer, um, I imagine there is a, some bit of path that leads up to getting to a position like that. Could you tell us a little bit about your path and how that kind of led to leading an organization like yours? Yeah. So, you know, I, I started out like uh, most people. In my case, I, I came directly out of the military where I had some experience uh, uh, sort of as a second or, or tertiary responsibility doing some IT. Uh, but then, you know, going uh, as I was finishing up my degree in, in software engineering, going starting at it kind of at the bottom doing websites like most people and then, uh, uh, you know, some server side programming uh, and in, in fairly small teams, again, in, in defense and Intel. Uh, but then discovered, you know, I had an aptitude for working directly with customers, helping to understand their problems so we could build uh, better software. And uh, one of the things I found, at least in, in software engineering, is while it's certainly important to be good at the engineering side, if you can communicate with customers, understand their problems, and then translate that, that's really important. So that enabled me to uh, take on a lot of team leadership roles on different projects, um, you know, and sort of do that in the consulting space for a number of years, uh, and then some opportunities uh, arose where I was able to go into some pre-sales uh, engineering, originally with uh, BEA before it was bought by Oracle, so the original WebLogic platform and all of that. Uh, and then over to MarkLogic, where I spent about five years, uh, again, now teaching people to do the types of things, uh, work with technology, but really focus on understanding the problem and, and translating that and helping people understand technology. And I, I, I think that bridge is really important for people. And as a CTO, 
yes, I, I developed and created a lot of technology that FactGem runs on, but really so much of that is being able to explain to potential customers, to prospects, to existing customers, to other engineers, and even internally, what is that vision? Uh, what does the market need? What are people saying? So that everyone understands uh, really what's going on. As a follow-on to that, I, I imagine one thing you probably experienced is a change in the ratio of time you spend, like really dug into the code and then shifting over to that communication with customers and whatnot you were talking about there. What was your experience like going through that transitory period? That can be pretty dramatic. Uh, there are times even now where I might not get to write any code for a week. Uh, and I start to get a little jittery, honestly. Um, but it's important and it's necessary. And I think sometimes, particularly engineers, you feel like if you're not writing code, you're not contributing. And that's not true. If you're still helping with marketing or you're talking to customers, you're making sales calls or you're uh, even just spending time kind of staring at your whiteboard thinking about what does the future look like 90 days out, that's still contributing. Uh, it's just a different way of contributing than what a lot of people are used to and you, and you can't count lines of code or numbers of bugs fixed or numbers of tickets closed, uh, but you're still contributing as part of the team. And uh, it's something I still struggle with sometimes uh, and, you, and you need a change of pace I find. I, I still love to write a lot of code, um, but it, it can certainly be a bit of a challenge. Is there any media, whether it's a podcast, print material, video, or some other such thing that you found has been especially informative or inspirational to you as you've worked in your practice? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, just because of my sort of my schedule and the way I do things, I, I like to listen to podcasts. I like to go to conferences, though, honestly, still. Uh, and, and for me, the reason is, again, as, as a CTO and someone who's juggling code and, and, and a hundred other things, uh, it can be difficult to find time during a regular day to read a blog or even listen to a podcast. But if I can block out two days, or sometimes I'm lucky like four days, to say I'm going to a conference and I'm going to be immersed there and listen to people, uh, that brings about a certain focus. Now, I know that's, that's hard in certain organizations and certain people. There are cost factors and things. Uh, so in those situations, I recommend trying even just to block out days. So sometimes there's a lunch and learn where organizations will block out, you know, 45 minutes or an hour. Uh, but actually trying to schedule those times, put them on your calendar and block them and say, hey, for this hour, I'm going to go and read about this interesting thing, or I'm going to, you know, watch this tutorial, because otherwise, it's just too hard to schedule and something that appears more pressing, because uh, it's tactically urgent, uh, comes in. But strategically, you've got to keep on top of these things. And speaking of conferences, have there been any you've been to that kind of stick out in your mind as like you had a particularly positive experience? So just recently, uh, I was uh, attending and speaking at the uh, Data Architecture Summit and Graphorium Conference in Chicago. Uh, that was really interesting for me because it, it brought two big communities together, Data Architects and, and Graph, and there's a big overlap there. Uh, so I saw some really interesting things come out of that. Uh, generally speaking, I've attended the last couple of O'Reilly Strata Data Conferences in New York. Uh, those are always interesting. You get a wide variety of, of speakers and topics there. And I think in particular, uh, the, the uh, non-promotional industry keynotes are always really interesting. You get uh, really deep thinkers in a variety of, of areas, not necessarily 
obviously related to computer science, but are really working in the field of data and analytics. And uh, I enjoy a lot of that because I think it, it, it gets you shifting, gets your thoughts shifted away from just algorithm implementation to larger concepts. Uh, shifting now to our, our main topic of this episode, this idea that I believe you alluded to in your answer about personal why, this idea of trying to democratize the way data can be used as a tool. Uh, could you give us an idea of the, the high level of what that concept is to you, that idea of democratizing data? Yeah, so uh, in, in a lot of ways, and, and I don't, you know, coming out of you know, IT, I don't in any way mean this in, in a negative way, but our IT staff organizations have become essentially the high priests of our data. So all of our organizations and our business are, are run by data, but we don't really get direct access to it. As a business, we, we explain sort of the problem we want to solve or the questions we want to ask. Uh, and people in IT, they, they listen and they take notes and they go away for a while and, and they do something kind of magical and they come back and they deliver something. And then, and I've been in so many of these meetings, there's always sort of this moment of pause and everyone kind of looks at each other and sort of shrugs like, yeah, I guess that's sort of what we asked. And they go and they play with the deliver, deliverable for a while. And of course, it's not quite right and you iterate on it. And I think the biggest challenge there again is there are different worlds and different vocabularies, right? So when a business describes a problem, typically they go to a whiteboard, they draw some circles and lines and they say, here's our problem and here's how we think about things. We want to get from A to B. Uh, but in the translation of that, not due to any malicious intent or anything, but due to the tools that as technologists we've traditionally been using, they don't map directly to that. There's a, there's a cognitive disconnect and a, and a gap. And so the things get translated uh, to this, again, this, this jargon that's really only spoken by these high priests of data. And then we present those back and go, I took your picture and I made this really big diagram and I cover the table with it. Is this what you meant? And no one in that room can validate that. So everyone shakes their head. So I, we want to remove that gap. We say, look, if you can draw that picture, and this is how you, as the people who understand the business and understand the data, think about it, then that can be the model. And if you can do that, right, if we can separate that gap between how the business reasons about the data flows and how it actually lives in our systems, you're reducing friction uh, between the teams uh, between the actual people and using the software, and then you can get more done. Uh, you're still certainly going to need IT support. If you want to go to a petabyte of, of data, for example, that's going to require infrastructure and support. But you're really enabling the business to get more connected to it, uh, which is going to enable IT to spend more time doing other things, uh, helping in, in larger projects, more complicated things. And you're going to build, I think, a, a closer bond between not just people and the data, but those two teams as well. So again, really just letting the people who rely on the data have more say in how that actually works and, and really be able to establish those clear lines of communication between both parties. I imagine the, the parties you've described there that they uh, at times run into situations where it's like, hey, we've decided to start collecting information about a thing and that information then builds over time. As you mentioned, like maybe even as large as a petabyte. What sort of problems have you seen in your experience kind of pop up that need to be wrangled as organizations get larger and larger sets of information to evaluate? Yeah, that, that's that's an excellent point. Um, and I think it's, it starts half a step back. There's sometimes where uh, analysts or people running lines of business, they have a question that you can't currently ask in the IT system. And they go to IT and say, I, you know, I think this might be interesting. I think it has value. It's not 
going to change the business, but it's value. And they explain it to IT, and I think it's like, well, because you need us to get involved. We've got to translate your picture and implement it. And that could be three months or so, and, and a lot. That's too much money. It's, 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 it's for another. So those things never even happen. Those things just get cut off initially, and that's a problem. Uh, then you see you get to that sort of medium scale, and you, and you can do that. But again, uh, in a lot of our traditional technologies, the cost of change is high. Uh, if you start taking, creating a data warehouse, for example, uh, a lot of times that initial cost and effort is three, four, five months just for data modeling and validation because you're forced to look at not just what questions you want to answer right now, but what might you want to answer in a year, two years, because changing the schema of that data warehouse is expensive and hard and requires engineering and a lot of support. And that just adds cost and time and reduces your flexibility. So anytime you have a technology, in my opinion, where you can start small, demonstrate uh, return on investment for the business, and then rapidly build upon it and grow that, that's the best possible scenario. Maybe it, maybe it doesn't generate anything. Fine, you stop early. But that flexibility is just really important to let the IT evolve at the pace of the business. As folks try to do that, or as folks try to answer questions with, with data, as you mentioned, uh, what sort of techniques do you typically see folks implement to, to try to like reach in and, and get those nuggets? Yeah, so in terms of like the, the uh, analytics right now, of course, data science is, is the hot thing. Everyone wants to be a data scientist, hire a data scientist, data data scientist, whatever it might be. Um, so in that community, again, uh, R is still very big. People are really moving now to tools like Jupyter Notebook, um, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of Python technologies. Um, and those are all great. Uh, they're fantastic. Uh, if you look at the, sort of the more the cutting edge, I mean, the real cutting edge was happening at, at some of the larger... Uh, companies doing research as well as universities, they're doing research on re-implementing older algorithms. And what I mean specifically is, for example, people talk a lot now about, oh, we're going to we can do some AI machine learning. Well, what kind? Well, maybe we'll build a neural network. So if you think about a neural network, you, you are, you'd immediately get a picture, or at least I do, of like a brain and, and the neural pathways. That's actually not what any traditional neural, na- neural network algorithms look like right now. They're not uh, graph like that. They're very either columnar data or tabular data. Why? Because that's what the technology was many, many, many years ago when those algorithms were developed. And now researchers are realizing, hey, we have the technology to actually represent the data uh, in a way that looks like that picture of neurons in the brain that looks like a neural network, which is actually what we're trying to model with the algorithm. And so now like graph-based neural networks are becoming a very big uh, research point. Uh, and, and research are finding a lot of uh, really interesting areas and improvements uh, by moving in, in that area. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that where data scientists are using these newer, more efficient, uh, more powerful data structures for doing uh, analytics. For the listener that might not be quite as aware of the landscape, I, I think you mentioned this, uh, like a graph-based neural network. Could you, could you speak to kind of what the benefit of that kind of a, uh, achieving that, that sort of model gives us? Sure. So uh, graph databases, in particular property uh, or labeled property graph databases, are fairly new. They were actually invented roughly nine or so years ago by a gentleman named uh, Emil Ephraim, who's actually the CEO and co-founder of uh, Neo4j. Um, 
And uh, the idea is, it's very much like, again, like if you draw that map of your business on a whiteboard, it's circles and lines connected to each other and think of properties in the circle. So, you know, you might draw a circle that's a person and inside that circle, you write down their first name and their last name and their age. And then you draw a line that says, knows other person. And so once you connect these things, you can really do network analysis. So people, so think of things like Facebook and so forth, where you're trying to understand who knows who and, and who's liking what posts and how does that impact things. Um, while ironically, Facebook isn't using graph technology for that. Um, but that's the kind of thing you think about when you, when you look at this, this sort of social network analysis. Um, the ability to understand how things relate to each other, even several degrees of distance away, uh, is really very powerfully enabled by this. And it's, it's something that's very, very hard to do, if not impossible, in other technologies. So when you're trying to do uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and understand what is affecting my customers? Like why are they doing this? Or what are they going to do? Or uh, I'm in healthcare, and I'm trying to understand, you know, how can I achieve a positive outcome for my patients or, you know, keep healthcare costs low? what things are actually affecting that. Those are often secondary, tertiary, or further out effects. So you need to be able to look at that holistic picture. Fraud is another great example of that as well. The space we're talking about, I think often evokes um, some amount of futurism by its nature, uh, especially since as you're talking about, there's like things that are very much on the cutting edge. Is there something in this space that you see as be like most exciting or thing that elicits the most hope in you uh, looking forward? Yeah, you're, you're right. It, it It is kind of a scary space in some ways. Right? There's lots of talk about, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's been up on the hill and what's happening with social media and how is that being used? And how does it even affect, you know, our democracy in terms of people and bots influencing other people? Uh, so that can be a little scary. I think on the positive side from, so the ethical side of you and things, uh, there are now a number of people, a number of, of really deep thinkers who are looking at and studying what are the legal and ethical ramifications of a lot of these technologies and, and how should we be thinking about them? Uh, you know, what, what are the right things, uh, you know, to do? Um, you know, so to paraphrase uh, Jeff Goldblum, of, of course, from, you know, Jurassic Park, you know, sometimes you have to stop and think, you know, just because I can do it, you know, should we do it? And, and people are starting to tackle that now, which is, which is great. Uh, on the technology side, uh, I'm obviously very excited about uh, the use of graph databases and, and as that technology matures. Uh, in particular, what excites me there is people are starting to look at taking some of these machine learning concepts and embedding them directly in the database. So instead of having to have data that sits in my database, then I either extract some out and do machine learning or I have to run complicated algorithms that query the database in place and give me some uh, result, if I can essentially put some of those algorithms in place into the database, so as the database itself updates, those are constantly evolving uh, in place, I can do much more interesting things at scale. Uh, and that is something now that is actually being looked at by a, a number of companies, and, and some have started to do some work in that area in, in production. Earlier in our conversation, you, you talked a little bit about this idea of tr that translation layer between folks on kind of the business side of things, folks on the more technical side of things. Can we dig into that uh, a bit more? Uh, like in, I guess in an ideal world, what, what should that interaction look like from your perspective? 
Yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, I'm a big fan of, of small integrated teams, right? Um, so, you know, I, I want to see uh, a team being created to solve a particular problem, you know, sort of not, not a, a standing team, but, you know, the business comes and says, hey, we want to look at this problem. Okay, let's get someone, let's get a business analyst from that side who maybe really deeply understands it uh, and, and a domain expert. Uh, let's get someone from IT who understands maybe the aspects of how we deal with um, our data systems and our website, whatever the, whatever the technology might be, and, and, and embed them as part of the same team, right? I think part of our problem, and this is true in a lot of ways, so many of our technology problems, I think, aren't technology problems. They're organizational people problems, right? And as organizations grow, we say, oh, well, we have the business department. And over here is the IT department. And there immediately becomes that gap. Uh, if instead we say, no, we're just going to have functional teams and we take people from different skill sets and we embed them together so that everyone is just driving toward that same goal, which in theory they are anyway, but we remove those functional barriers. Uh, you know, that can, can certainly help tremendously. Uh, obviously, that's more of a social engineering way of dealing with it. Uh, again, and in, in from technology, like anything else, we have to, I think, find uh, what is the simplest way of talking about the subject, right? So, again, traditionally, if we were going to solve a problem together to, to, to meet your business need, and you describe the data to me, and I said, well, I'm going to put this in a relational database, and what I've got to do, uh, Ryan, is I've got to put this in third normal form, and I think, I've lost you. We're not talking about the same thing anymore. And if you start going deep into some business jargon, you know, uh, about, uh, you know, value ratios, like you, you've lost me. Um, so we, we've got to find a, a common language that everyone can understand. with. And I think a lot of it, if we can do so a lot of it visually, that helps tremendously. So being able to see like on a whiteboard, these are how things connect. Um, these are the rules about uh, how the system treats information when it comes in. It, it just really helps get everyone on the same page and, and reasoning about the same thing. You yourself, you come at this from, um, you know, a computer science trained background. Uh, how would you say that background has informed and shaped your view and, and how you look at these sort of problems? So I, I've, uh, and, and so I, I started doing computer science obviously many, many years ago in, in grade school. And I, I was fortunate enough to, uh, in grade school, be taught to do assembly language. Uh, and I taught to do it before anyone told me that there were uh, programs doing that. So I had to, you have to put in the codes into memory and things. Uh, but what was great about that is I think is a foundation and that, and that for me is built on through there is understanding how to take a complex problem and break it down into very small steps. Uh, so I've taught computer science at a number of large universities, uh, and particularly I find at the uh, intro level, that's the biggest barrier for people. And it's not a computer science problem, right? Because uh, I'll go through an exercise with students and we'll say, and it's, it's not something that I invented, you'll see this in many places, but you know, we'll give you a simple task, like uh, I want you to explain to me as if I was just a robot who could only do exactly what you told me, how to go into the kitchen and make a sandwich. And that's really hard for people to do this. You think, well, go into the, you know, go into the kitchen and get the peanut butter. Well, I can't. The fridge isn't open. Oh, oh take the peanut butter out of the fridge. Okay. Put the peanut butter in the sandwich. 
there goes a can of peanut butter, you know, on the bread. And like, no, no, that's not what I meant. Like, well, as humans, you go, well, I know that's not what you meant, but the computer doesn't know that. Uh, and it, a lot of that is getting out of our own head, right? We all of us live inside the context of our own world and what we internally know and being able to step outside of that to break those problems down for not just computers, but for other people can be really, really hard and very frustrating. Uh, and, you know, again, that for me, is something I found most helpful in my career is to be able to, you know, do that. It's helpful in writing things. It's helpful in debugging code uh, and, and just talking to other people. So for someone that is maybe either in the middle of getting over that, that hurdle, maybe they've just jumped over that hurdle you mentioned, and they're kind of just getting started out in this field, uh, what advice would you give that person as they're getting going? So I would, I would say you know, two pieces of, of advice. One is you know, computer science is changing so rapidly. There is so much out there. Uh, you can't know it all. There's no way. There's new languages appearing every day. There's new types of programming languages. There's new database technologies. There's a, there's a massive amount of things. Um, one thing I see people want to do is then go, oh, no, I'm just going to do this narrow thing because this field is too wide and too scary. Uh, so we focus on one very specific thing. I think that works in the short run, uh, but you have to have at least a smattering of, of knowledge of the other things. So while, for example, you decide what I really love is just, is, is I like to write um, interactive web applications. That's fantastic. You know, learn all you can about uh, your your tool of choice for web pages, whether that's, you know, um, TypeScript or JavaScript or whatever it might be. But you need to know a little bit about databases. You need to know a little bit about network protocols because you're going to get into those conversations. So to uh, take a little bit of time and, and things you might learn over in that other area are going to help you think about things a little differently and understand the problem better in your space. So I would say everyone needs a little bit of breath, at least, uh, to understand what's happening. And then the second thing I would say is, yeah, communication. Don't, don't forget communication. Uh, I think it's been something that our universities in the computer science parts have been somewhat negligent about. We focus on algorithms and programming, but we neglect uh, written and verbal communication a lot. And that is a huge part of being successful in this field. A tradition we have here on, on Civic Tech Chat is to leave space uh, at the end of a conversation here that we have with a guest to allow them to give us an idea of what sort of thoughts we should have as we end our listening to this program. Could you give us an idea of what that would be for you? Uh, what sort of concluding thoughts would you have? Yeah, uh, I think you know, a couple of sort of uh, shorter thoughts you know one is depending upon your role again don't be afraid to do things a bit differently uh, a lot of times in this show you'll hear people you have a problem and people hear me oh the solution to your problem is clearly in this area this is how we do it it's in this area we use this kind of technology uh, ask why a lot of times the answer becomes if you dig a little bit deeper is because that's how we do it because that's how we did it before uh, and that's not unique, it's not unique to computer science. It, it, that's, you see it in all different types of fields and industries. Uh, but be afraid to say, be, don't be afraid to say, uh, I want to think about so differently, try something. Um, I hear what you're saying. I think there's a different way. Um, 
that's super important. Um, you sort of have to listen to feedback and, and, and you know, people more even more experienced around you, but trying something different. Uh, and again, I think another area is linked data again. I, I think really, um, while there may never be one type of data store that solves all problems, I don't think that's necessarily realistic. Uh, I think we are very much at a crux in the data scene where we are moving away from all the traditional columnar relational type structures into something more. Uh, we live in a connected world. Everything we do is influencing everything else. Businesses, healthcare, uh, finance companies, social media, uh, it affects all of it. It's a connected world. So start looking at those technologies. Uh, how can we connect them? How can we move beyond just silos of, of data to help our companies understand the broader landscape and, and, and picture of things? Mark, again, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to join us here on Civic Tech Chat and to share with us your insights, your experiences, and, and your knowledge there. Thanks, Ryan. It's been a pleasure being on the show. You can follow us on Twitter using the handle at civictechchat, visit us on the web at civictech.chat, or subscribe to us for content updates wherever it is you download your podcasts.